Uh, before we start, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. Uh, thank you that uh, my family is on the mend from being sick, but we lift up all of those who've gone down in the last 24 hours with the cold and the flu. Lord, just uh, protect them, uh, keep them safe, give them supernatural strength and healing. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, let's dive in. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Again, there's going to be a lot of scripture references, so I'm going to name them. I'm going to read them, but then we'll have the study guide published on the website tomorrow. The broadcast will also be up on Thursday, so you can actually go back and review them because these aren't like normal sermons. They're just like a fire hydrant almost. And that's what they feel like when I'm writing them is basically like I call Brent and I'm like, you have to read it and tell me if any of it is biblically accurate because I'm like emotionally, spiritually, mentally exhausted from writing it. And he was like, well, how long did you write it? And I was like, well, once I, st I stopped studying and sat down and wrote it, it, it came like 45 minutes. But those 45 minutes felt like I wasn't putting an audible thing to the page. And then they'll like call me back and it'll be like, ah, I guess maybe, maybe there's hope for you in the future. This was pretty good. So, um, oh, by the way, we should keep Brent in your prayers tonight. He is actually at an interview for an interim uh, Sunday morning pastor position for a Christian church while they're hiring a senior pastor. So it would replace some of the income he's lost from the tour groups he's had and also not conflict with his obligation with HFF. So it would be like a huge win-win for his family if it works. So Keep him in your prayers. That's where him and Tom, uh, Brent, yeah. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where the church is, somewhere here locally, but uh, he would just be an interim for, for their Sunday morning. So it'd be a win-win. He'd get to preach on Saturday, preach on Sunday, get paid, and pay his bills. And so it'd be awesome. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Three. I can't speak tonight. That's okay. I'm barely awake. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from his work that had been done in creation. All of the scripture references that I use is ESV as well. So if you use a different translation, there might be some begats or beneaths or whatever's in there. Um, so mine's all ESV. I, I had that question after last uh, class. There's a seven day creation, whether you believe it's literal or figurative, uh, it really has little relevancy to us. I mean, a lot of people will believe it's more of a figurative. It could be the day is of a thousand years. So technically it was 7,000 years for the creation. It wasn't just seven actual days. Um, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us. Uh, I don't know that it matters um, because God's pretty good about being pretty explicit about his commandments that that hey, you don't waver at all when they matter. So, uh, but either way, there's seven days in our week. You know, our week starts on, on Sunday. It ends on Saturday. Sunday, Yom Rishon, or the first day was the creation of light. Interesting, the first thing that God does to break forth the chaos of the darkness and the void is to bring light. Uh, if there wasn't a better foreshadow of the very first work of God to Yeshua coming into a dark world, I don't know what is. You can go through all the scriptures, but basically the first thing in the void, in the chaos, comes light to cast out the darkness. Monday is known as Yom Shani, or the second day. That was the creation of the atmosphere. Uh, some translations use firmament, um, ultimately the globe. Um, Tuesday is Yom Shalishi. 
I think that's how you pronounce that. I did not read that out loud on Google to tell me. Or the third day was the creation of the plants and the ground. Wednesday was Yom Revi. Or the fourth day, uh, which was the creation of the sun, the moons, the stars. Thursday was Yom Kamshi. Or the fifth day was the creation of the birds and the sea creatures. And Friday was Yom Shishi. Or the sixth day, which was the creation of the animals and humans. Man, Hebrew makes me want to have sushi. Jeez, old Pete. Saturday was uh, Yom HaShabbat. Obviously, Brent mentioned that uh, the last couple of weeks talking about Shabbat, uh, the terminology, and it was the seventh day. It was a day of rest. All the random calendars and, and things, if you just think that seven days, seven days, seven days, seven days, seven days, and sure, there's leap years and all these things, but, but we have no accurate count um, due to the exile and the different calendars of Judaism that we have no accurate account of exactly what Hebrew year we're in. The people who say that they've tracked the, the stars and the moons, it's, it's not accurate. And so um, seven days, seven creations, all these things. Um, on the sixth day, God created man, placed them in the garden, and then they rested. Uh, interestingly enough, the motif of the Sabbath before the fall of man was that we were to work from a place of rest not just rest from a place of work. So a lot of times we see the regulation is like, okay, well, we work, 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 and then we take a day of rest. Yeah, well, for man, man was given in the garden. You'll see if you read on in chapter three of Genesis, and I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole, you'll see that, that there's almost a, a recap then, like almost a story of male and female he created. He told them to till the garden, to work in the garden. And it almost seems like if you're just reading it from a chronological order, that's like, well, they created creation, and then he gave them the instruction to work the garden. But that's... That's not what happened. It's kind of a recap. It's almost what Brent is showing us in the book of Hebrews, where sometimes this is legal code, and we're speaking a legal code. Sometimes it's narrative. Sometimes it's poetry. We see the same thing in Genesis in the creation story. Obviously, we know that Moses' account of Genesis was Holy Spirit-inspired. He wasn't alive. So when God is giving it to Moses to write down in the Torah, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Moses had, like, he wasn't there. And so he wasn't like peeping on, on Adam and Eve in the garden or anything like that. It was a revelation of God to tell the story of the creation the way God wanted it to be uh, handed out. And so we see, though, that the first thing that God does on the next day after creating Adam and Eve is he joins in a rest with his creation. Uh, like a good father would, he says, hey, let me teach you how to build this table. Hey, let me teach you how to throw the baseball. Rather than just saying, you need to rest this day, he says, come with me. I'm going to do it with you. I'm going to teach you how to live this lifestyle. Uh, we also see that uh, with the fall of man, that all of a sudden work becomes hard and tiresome, and that clinging to the rest of God is even more important. Before the fall of man, there was work. It tells us that they, were, they had jobs. Ultimately, the fall of man came because man was un, wasn't doing his job. He wasn't protecting and working and guarding. Some, some would say it's agricultural. Of course, it was agricultural because it was a garden. But part of the, the task and the goal was simply that you were to protect. You were to protect your wife. You were to protect your home. You were to protect and provide for that area that's there. It's one of the, the reasons why I get so bent out of shape when I look at uh, husbands and wives in the relationship. And it's like the guy is just so apathetic to what's going on in his home, the needs of his wife, the needs of his children, financial needs or whatever. I get so upset because it's literally like the first thing that God asked a man to do was 
take care of your wife, take care of your home, take care of your kids. I mean, that just comes later, be fruitful and multiply. It was implied, even though like it wasn't. So, and then we see all of a sudden work starts to get hard. Just like Eve, Hava had, you know, childbirth, there was going to be pain in childbirth. There was all these things that came with the fall of man. Ultimately, work originally wasn't supposed to be this like laborious task. Uh, laborious is, is actually the translation of the Hebrew words. Like work was not meant to be like laborious. And some of us, we have jobs right now, but we hate our jobs. And so it's like, well, this job is laborious. Some of you, you love what you do. And so it doesn't matter whether you work five hours in a day or you work 80 hours in a week, it's not laborious. You go, you enjoy what you're doing, you get to be a part of it. Like it's a huge, it's a huge blessing for you. Well, those are kind of the contrast in the most simplistic terms of work before the fall of man to work after the fall of man. Work became laborious, tiresome, and so finding a place to cling to the rest of God was even more important after the fall, that you wouldn't get trapped, caught up in the trappings of the world, um, the two-car garages, who's got the new cars, the nicest clothes, the fanciest bling, all that type of stuff, whose black stone is bigger, um, all those things. But just to remember that in all things, God created all. The black stone you have, God's. The smoker I have, God's. The truck Michael owns, that's God's. Everything you guys have is God's. Every provision that comes is God's. This is, is one of the earliest principles of the Sabbath is that if you can trust that everything you have is God's, you can rest in God. If you cannot trust that everything that you have is not God's, it's yours or it's somebody else's provided it for you, there is a turmoil and a strife that comes with you on a regular basis that I have to go get more, I have to get more. Now, don't go the opposite way and say, well, because everything is God's, God can give me whatever he wants, so I can just be a lazy bum who sits on my butt and does nothing. Like, no, that's, that's, not, that's not in the Bible either. In fact, we're going to talk about that in the Taboo series of being lazy. So um, it, don't go to either extremes. It's important to find a balance in there. But from Genesis on, we see that there's this weekly cycle that continues. Friday evening to Saturday evening, we find as Yom HaShabbat, it is a day of rest. The Sabbath itself is a reoccurring theme throughout the entire Bible. Um, today, though, I want to introduce you to a couple of different thoughts about the Shabbat. Hopefully they're new. Um, maybe if they're not, they're just a refresher. You know, in our corner of Christianity, Shabbat is considered this whole time of like regulation. Um, when I first came in, you know, I, I wasn't a believer for two years. And so when I first came in to the Shabbat, I spent the entire day worried about whether I was transgressing the commandments of God. Just, am I allowed to cook? Am I allowed to clean? Am I allowed to do this? By three or four o'clock in the afternoon, I, I would be, I can't sit still. I'm a type A, like, Lord, this isn't restful. This isn't peaceful. I need to be doing something. I need to be go, 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 go. And so today, hopefully, I'll be able to point a picture using the Word of God that it's so much more than just God saying, don't work. It's so much more than God just saying, don't do these things. Hopefully, I can point that out today. Uh, Shabbat is the common term we use. There's, there's prophetic songs, Sabbath peace, Sabbath peace, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath peace. It's way more prophetic when you sing it in the Hebrew, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat 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 Shalom. No jokes today? Okay, I get it. I'm not feeling great either. So, um, 
But the, the, there's another Hebrew word that's used in comparison to Shabbat for that rest, and it's noach, N-U-A-K-H or C-H, depending upon which version of Hebrew you're using. Uh, interestingly enough, this word is used before noach, the guy who does the whole ark thing, uh, and yet he was rested inside the will of the Lord while the rains were wiping out the earth. But this word actually means to dwell and settle. It's used in, in Genesis in, in regards to the Shabbat, in regards to the rest. This isn't just a cease from labor. It's actually a type of rest that surpasses just ceasing. Like, okay, I didn't go to work today. That on a surface level is restful. But that's not as restful as when the snow is falling outside I turn the fireplace on and my wife and I snuggle up with a blanket and we watch a TV show and we have literally nothing to do. We don't have to go anywhere. There's, there's no obligations. You can rest, settle, and dwell together. That's just a whole different type of rest than just, well, I just didn't go to work today or I just put my phone on do not disturb. That's a, like that's just a peace. That's a, that's a place you don't want to leave. It's a place if you could figure out how to get paid to do that, most people would want that. Um, it's just different. And so when we see that word noach, we also understand that like, okay, let's take it out of our physical relationship with our spouse or our best friend. Let's put that into the relationship with the Lord. So when you come into a rest, a ceasing, he's also asking you to dwell and settle in his presence the same way that you would if it was snowing outside. You can't go anywhere. Uh, obviously, if it snows in Oklahoma, that means there's already three feet of ice underneath it. And so you're cuddled up and you're just having that peaceful time with no obligations that are there. Um, and for everybody, that looks something different. You know, for my wife, that would be a cabin in Colorado. For me, that is any place south of Key West where it never goes under 70 degrees. So that can look different for you in your home. So it's not saying, well, I don't really enjoy cuddling with my wife. Okay, you're missing the point. Whatever that is, you know, that hot cup of cocoa, that chai tea, whatever that is, that, that's like, oh, that's my restful dwelling place. That's what the Lord is actually inviting us into on the Sabbath. So much more than just the regulation of cease from your work or don't cook or don't do this or don't do that. It's literally... And I, I'm going to do this, and somebody on YouTube is going to say, like, this dude's, like, all modern or whatever. But it's like finding your inner peace to just say, oh, God's got it. I'm with God. There's literally nothing wrong that can happen in this place. We also see that uh, God rested immediately with his creation uh, after he created order from the chaos. So it, there's a symbolism there before we even get into Exodus and all these commandments is that God took chaos, the void of the world, created order, created his sons and daughters, rested with them. The family union as a family, whether you're a family by namesake, whether you're a family by work's sake, by church sake, whatever, you rest and dwell with those people. A lot of times we are really good at the ceasing. We're not really good at the settling. Um, the Sabbath in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 16, 4 through 5. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain down bread from heaven for you. 
and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Now, interestingly enough, I believe it is Exodus 12. I don't have that reference in my notes, but it's Exodus 12, I believe, where God actually finally delivers the Israelites from slavery. So we're talking about four chapters, basically, of a narrative of we're slaves, I'm going to bring you out, two, I'm going to test you. Uh, it also says that he's testing them to see whether they will walk in his laws or not. Well, there's, we don't have the Ten Commandments in, in the form in Exodus 16. So this implies that they somehow knew something. They somehow knew some obligation, some expectation, some like commitment to the Lord. It wasn't like they had a full Bible, a full list of 613 commandments in the Tanakh and the Torah at this time. They didn't even have the 10 at this time. They had just been delivered. So this implies if the Lord is saying that he's going to test them that to see whether or not they'll walk in the laws, there was some expectation that they understood how to be set apart in some very basic level. Probably similar to what we saw in Genesis, where basically it was just like one commandment. And that was like, don't eat of this. Um, before we get into the 10, before we get into the 613, before we get into the over 1,000 in the New Testament, the Lord was consistently trying to develop a relationship. You know, a lot of times people will take shots at Christianity and they'll say, well, it's, it's not just having a relationship. At the root of all of it, it actually is that simple. Now, the relationship has terms, like, you know, he's not an abusive daddy God, but like, there is, there is a relationship. You, you, can't, you can't just have terms without a relationship. You have to have a relationship to have terms. Like if Ian calls me tomorrow and says, here's a list of 17 things you will do and when you approach me or dialogue with me uh, moving forward, he's laid out terms and, and I'm going to look at him and I'm going to be like, what? Like, that's not our relationship. If some random person walks through the door and says, hey, Gene, um, here's the seven things you must do to, to be able to talk to me, you're going to be like, that's fantastic, but I don't know you, and I'm not sure I'm even interested in entertaining this anymore because you're pretty creepy. Like, you're going to end up in a hole with somebody looking down going, it puts the lotion on the skin, like you run away. Like, you just immediately run away. So, uh-huh. Jesus was not creepy. This is true. So shortly after God delivers the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt, we see that he's starting to try to lead them. He's, he's trying to be a shepherd. I mean, there's all kinds of offices and there's giftings and that. We're going to go into that in, in, in a couple of months at HFF on Saturdays. But ultimately, God always is a shepherd. As a father, he's always trying to lead, shepherd, and guide his people. Now, he can also be prophetic, he can also be apostolic, he can also do all those things, but, but he's always a shepherd trying to lead and teach his people. And part of this crucial thing coming out of being slaves, where they literally had to work nonstop. They worked whenever the Pharaoh told them they were at the mercy of the Pharaoh, they were property. He's saying, in order for me to teach you and break you from these habitual habits you have, which is, I have to work. Nobody feels that way in America. I have to work. One of the first things he does is, I'm going to teach you how to rest and trust me for provision. I'm going to rain down manna. I'm going to tell you when you can gather. I'm going to tell you when you cannot gather. And 
the whole goal here is you have to trust me that it's okay for you to rest, dwell in me, and it's okay for you to trust me to be your provision. Two key things. This wasn't just about ceasing. At that point in time, they were walking in the desert all the time. Like everything probably sucked. There was sand everywhere. Like, and they didn't have showers. So like, this was just not a great environment. But the first thing he's saying to them is, I'm gonna be your provision. I'm gonna feed you. I'm gonna take care of you. And I'm asking you to do one thing. Trust me and dwell in me on a day where you're used to going and grabbing for yourself. And there's more verses in Exodus 16 that goes into people would grab more than they were supposed to, and it would stink, and it would rot, and they couldn't eat. And so there was, of course, all kinds of Western culture Americans before there was Western culture Americans in the wilderness who were like, oh, I have to get mine, and like putting it in here, and God just said, no, that's not going to work. It's, it's going to stink. It's not going to work. To trust him. Six days gather, and on the day of man, you will gather twice as much. Friday is called there the day of man, and you will allow yourself to rest from the worry about surviving because God will provide. Slaves to bond servants, slaves to freedom. It's not just the fact that they saw all this miraculous stuff. You now have to be taught how to not go back into that mentality. You have to be taught that, that this God, Yahweh Elohim, Adonai Zabaot, that he is not Pharaoh. Because immediately, like, those cultures around that time, they all had altars. They all had sacrifices. They all had laws. They, I mean, history shows us that they all have stuff that we're going to see happen Sinai on. But even before those things happened, he's saying, trust me, dwell in me, abide in me. And if you can do that, I'm going to teach you how to live differently than everybody else. And it's not even as much as we get later on in the text about being set apart as it is be set in me. If you're set in me, you're already different from every other God, every other worldly thing, everything else. So a lot of times we'll say like, oh, well, we want to be set apart. The Bible calls us to be set apart. Part of being setting apart is learning how to sit down, shut up, and curl up in daddy's lap. It's that simple. Let him be your guide. The Sabbath is actually a picture that you should learn in your entire walk with him. Sometimes you sit down, shut up, and allow him to lead you, to speak to you, to, to give you prophetic downloads. And not every prophetic download is for somebody else. Most of the time, they might just be for you. Like, hey, cease from this. Hey, adjust this. Hey, step into this. Have faith. Trust me. I'm your provider. Let me be your dad. Again, a lot of us have a hard time with that because, you know, America doesn't have the highest success of, of great father figures per capita over the last 20 to 30 years. We just don't. We've got dads who've abandoned the home. We've got abusive fathers. We've got all these types of things. The ones that didn't abandon their homes, like they weren't always loving. They weren't always compassionate. World War II changed a lot of men. War changed a lot of men good, loving men who came back and they couldn't shut off the war. God can be a warrior, but he can be a gigantic teddy bear that just wants you to settle, dwell, Shevet, Noach, Shabbat, rest. This is also a foreshadow in Exodus 16 of trusting the Lord to be provision for all things when 
the nation is established, when the nation is in exile, when the nation is regathered, and then all the way down to today, where we're literally scattered to the four corners of the earth until he has the ingathering. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. And it's important to spend a little bit of time on, on the pre-Sinai Sabbath and what God was intending because Sinai on does have integrations of other societal things. And people will say, well, surely God wouldn't use pagan stuff. No, God didn't use pagan stuff. God just used common sense. Hey, we know these people have this. We know these people do this. We know they're going to they're gonna lust and want after that. So I'm going to set something up that looks similar, but is done the right way. Not because he wanted to imitate culture, because he wanted to lead his people away from culture into him, into his marvelous light. On the sixth day, this is Exodus 16, 22 through 30. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you bake, boil what you boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they lay it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath, a Shabbat to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there is none. On the seventh day, some of the people actually went out. Again, this isn't as much about like what you can eat, what you can't eat. He's basically saying you're a slave who's used to having to work every single day. You never take a day off. You never, you're, you're literally like around the clock slave to your fear. You're afraid that me, this God, is going to be Pharaoh to you, an abusive father to you. You, you don't know how to function. So obviously I don't think it surprised the Lord when he asked them to do something and they immediately did what they were used to doing. But he's gracious and compassionate, and he continues to work with us. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in your place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. There's so much to unpack here. I'm going to hit it real quick at highlights because it's virtually irrelevant to the whole premise of, of the Sabbath teaching and why I'm doing what I'm doing today. First off, bake what you bake, boil what you boil. That was a very laborious task. They were in, they were in the wilderness. This is not, can I turn on my gas range? If you make that equation, you're making an equation that the Lord never said and he didn't put into practice. Not only that, if that was so important, when they start to talk about the Sabbath in different areas in the future, you would hear the Lord regurgitate that information to reaffirm. This has nothing to do with whether you're going to turn on your stove, turn on your grill, whatever. This was specific to this time because of what had to happen in order to make that stuff. This was not... It wasn't flipping on a gas fireplace. It, it wasn't that easy. There were sticks. There was work. You had to put all kinds of preparation in. You're in the middle of the desert. Like, I wonder, manna was probably really, really good for you, but manna with some sand seems a little gritty. Like, there was work that had to be done. 
let alone if you hated to cook, it's just laborious as a whole. So you cannot take this, which is what Judaism does, you cannot take this and apply it to today and say, well, this is why we can't flip a light switch, this is why we can't have any spark, this is why we can't have a fire, this is why we can't cook, but it's okay if we hire a Gentile to do it. Yeah, okay, not, not okay. Not okay in any ways. On top of that, we don't go out of our homes. I've heard a lot of Messianic Hebrew roots individuals say, well, the reason why we don't travel at all on the Sabbath is because the Lord instructed him. He was disciplining them. He said, don't go gather because I already gave you enough. They had enough. When they went into their pantry, they had the food for that day. And they're like, oh, I still got to go. This was more about a slave mentality, not a son or a daughter mentality, than it was about anything else. So it doesn't mean that you can't go. On top of that, when it says you're to have a holy convocation later in the scripture, now you have a direct conflict. So the Lord says you're to have a holy convocation on the Sabbath, which means you're to gather with other like-minded people. But yet earlier on, he was schizophrenic and told you you're not to leave your place. No, he wasn't schizophrenic. He was disciplining them. They were in timeout. He put grown adults in timeout because they, they, couldn't, they couldn't deal with it. So we see that the Lord immediately four chapters after the Exodus is trying to attempt to reinduce to them the rest the settling, to get them to settle into his provision, not their slavery mindset, and that they were instructed to stay in their place and not go on the Sabbath because of discipline, because they disobeyed the Lord. They couldn't settle in the Lord. They couldn't find peace in the Lord. He was attempting them to see his provision, his rest, and that he alone allows you to survive. Most people will say they understand, I'm only here because God breathed life in me. God allowed my parents to make spaghetti, and here I am. They get that. But most people don't thank God every day that he allowed them to survive that day. God kept them alive in Egypt. God kept them alive in the wilderness. God keeps us alive today for his name's sake. In his namesake alone. Exodus 28 through 11, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, no, do not any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Um, when we start to get into fights over the Sabbaths and the calendars and the names and all these things, why is nobody fighting about bringing back male servants and female servants and sojourners living all in the gates? My mortgage would be so much cheaper if I had all those people throwing down on a mortgage payment. We pick and choose what we want to argue about in the commandments and the culture and the lifestyle, but like nobody's fighting for bringing back male slavery or female slavery or just allowing strangers or hitchhikers like to like come stay at your house. Like, why not? Christians aren't the only ones who pick and choose what they're doing. We do too. And so we have to understand, again, this was a cultural context. 
it's already progressed from what was in Genesis in the talk of the Sabbath. So when people say, well, he never changes the Sabbath, he never changes anything about it. Yes, he never changed the day of the Sabbath. He never changed the pre precept and principle of the Sabbath. But when it comes to instructions and how we do things and that, it very much evolves with the cultural elements that are there. Some of it is just out of pure father-like things. You messed up, now I got to step in. Some, it's, some of it is just that simple. That wasn't his intention. His intention is not to discipline you. But what happens when you leave him no choice? He's just supposed to leave you alone? Well, that's, that's not pretty loving. Hey, Jacob, I know you told me you want to go out there and walk in front of a bus, but I love you, so I'm not going to tell you what to do. So, hey, Becky, I'll perform his funeral. She's like, why didn't you go stop him? That's what the Lord is doing. It's like, hey, look, I've asked you to just dwell in me, settle in me, find peace in me. It's really that simple. Now, all the other things we, we create, do, all that type of stuff, that's, that's ours. We do that. And so he's saying, I'm trying to get you. And it's not even like it's bad. Like, he's like, hey, I want you to have peace. And you're like, I don't want peace. I'm happy just being mad and angry and anxious all the time. Like, I'm, I'm happy to have blisters on my feet and work, you know, seven days a week. Like, we're all mad about Sabbath? You're mad because God wants you to curl up in his lap with him and, and allow him to hug you and just love you? We're like mad about that? Like, I, I, I don't understand. So when I see Christians who say, well, I keep the Sabbath on Sunday— and I know how they actually practice their Sunday, I don't get mad. Because like they actually do. They go to church and then they come home and they just dwell with family time. Like they dwell in peace. I don't get mad. I get more mad when I see people who are Messianic Hebrew roots who claim to know what the word of God says, who spend the entire Sabbath literally bickering and fighting and their butt is so tight that like they're going to poop out a penny. Like, you can't do those things. Like, you're missing the entire point of the Sabbath. He wants you to dwell with Him. He wants you to rest with Him. He wants you to sit and settle. I'm making like a weird Buddha pose, even though I don't know what it is, but like it's, somebody's going to make a comment. It's just, He wants you to find peace. He is peace. If you can't find Him, you can't find peace. At Sinai, the formula formalizing of the remainder of what we remember, that we are to remember the work of the Lord, that the provision of the Lord and to dwell with him and rest. The commandments help us remember God and shows us how we can practice loving God. I don't know if you've ever seen out there off of the two greatest commandments that Yeshua says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can literally trace every single commandment back in the scriptures, New Testament and Old Testament. They're either helping you love God or helping you love your neighbor. And truthfully, I haven't figured out how to love my neighbor when I don't love God. Because I can't really think of anything God's ever really done wrong to me. I can think of things my neighbors have done that have made me mad. A list of them, really quick. I mean, I don't hold a grudge. I'm in the process of the deliverance. Exodus 31, 12 through 17. 
And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it sh on that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall your work be done, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn, re solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath forever throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and refresh. It's interesting here, God ups the ante. When people say God never changes, God's progressively changing throughout the Bible. Now, he's not changing the very core nature of who he is and the, the, the profession of what he's going to do. But in the garden, he didn't say, if you do any work, Adam, you will be cut off and dead from Israel. First off, there wasn't an Israel at that point in time. Um, he didn't say that it was holy for them and holy for him. Like he, he's, he's having to specify and grow. That leads me to believe when we look between Exodus 12 and Exodus 31 at the grumbling, all the issues that are taking place. God's basically saying, this is like the seventh time I've told you not to touch the stove. You keep touching the stove. First, I asked you kindly. Second, I used my dad voice. Third, I threatened to call mom. Fourth time, I pulled out the belt. Fifth time, I pulled out the belt and I slammed it on the floor. Sixth time, I grounded you. We're on like the eighth time. I've asked you to just do something simple and you cannot do it. So he's progressing like a father would progress because of the transgressions of the hearts and the habits of the people that he is attempting to take from slaves to sons and daughters. Sonship. God continues to show that the Sabbath is not merely words, but that it actually plays a central role in the Mosaic covenant. Remember what God has done for you. Remember that apart from God, you will always struggle to provide, rest, and you will always struggle with the things of this world. We see this, the principle of the Sabbath in regard to slavery and freedom in the story of the Exodus as well. Exodus 21, 2 when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go free for nothing. When people argue over the Sabbath, I just want to point out the fact that that's a Sabbath principle right there. Six years he shall serve, on the seventh year he shall... That's not a coincidence. It's a Sabbath principle. Slavery to freedom. When we're arguing over, well, can I buy on Sabbath? My question is, is well, can I keep a Hebrew slave for six years and then let him go on the seventh one? Why? Because that's the silliness of this. We're, we're, we're getting down in the muck, just like Judaism did, just like we argue about different sects of Christianity doing as well. They had Hebrew slaves serve six years and must be released on the seventh year for free. You get nothing. This isn't like you can sell him right before the warranty goes up and get. This isn't a guy in the last year of his contract in the NFL and you're going to trade him for some sort of draft pick to make sure you get capital. You, if you have a Hebrew slave, you have to release him after six years so that he can go free. Why? Because everything about the creation narrative points to a new creation narrative. The new creation narrative is a cyclical that 
We will enslave ourselves because we will. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, work, lack of sleep, whatever it is, we will enslave ourselves and God will have to come and set us free. We see it every week. It says, don't enslave yourself to the world's systems. Be set free by taking a day off when they don't want you to. Now, please don't use this as an excuse. We're going to get into it in the Taboo series. Don't use the Sabbath as an excuse to be lazy and not provide for your family. I can't find a job. They want me to work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath commandment is always trumped and superseded by anything that would harm life. We'll see this in the New Testament explicitly when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. This is why I cannot take any fault with anybody in the medical profession or in the emergency field to say, oh, well, I'm sorry, I have to work on the Sabbath. Yeah! Because if all the firefighters took off and a house burnt down and 13 children died, do you think you'd have a problem with it? If you don't, come see me because the Lord's not in you. If, if somebody were to be killed in an auto accident and there isn't a police officer or an ambulance or people to come and respond, everything in the Bible gets trumped, every commandment, for the preservation of life. Why? Because God is life. God is life. The tribes in Africa who literally have nothing but snake and unclean foods to eat, don't tell me that God is down there judging them saying, you can't eat that pork tonight. I know you haven't seen a cow in like three years, but keep fasting. I'm with you. Like, no, things are superseded to provide life. That doesn't mean that when you have access to good food, you have access to good medicine, that you can somehow say, well, all the Torah commandments can be superseded by life. So I'm going I'm to go ahead and eat that pork today. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do this. But nobody's arguing it over when you're drinking a soda. Nobody's arguing it over when you're drinking something that's just pure sugar and dye and everything else. Like, we still pick and choose what commandments of the Lord that we really want to put emphasis on or not. And so I don't like it when I hear people judgmental on what other people do or do not do. And I'm not even going to quote Paul in that situation. But like, we all got, we all got, we all got skeletons in our closet. We all got hidden Mountain Dew bottles while we're like, oh, you better drink that kombucha. It's really good. The fermenting will take care of your gut. And then like we're throwing like monster energy drinks under the, under the mattress so that nobody will judge us. No, slaves to free. Slaves to free. In Genesis, we became slaves to our flesh. We became slaves to the beast system. And at some points in time, we still interact with the beast system, which is far more than just work in the hustle and bustle. It's when God delegates authority to you and you claim it as your own. It's the same sin of Lucifer. Be like Connor being delegated authority by Russ and then saying, well, I've, really, it's me who gets to do this and this is how I do it. It's like, no, 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 my, your daddy allows you to do it. Well, it's the same thing. Yahweh allows us to do certain things, certain provisions for life and precepts and that. They're not ours, they're his. Everything is his. Stop trying to make it yours. Exodus continually reminds us and progresses through the Sabbath, through the lens of the cycle of new creation. The Sabbath in Deuteronomy 
Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. We're to keep it holy now. In Exodus it said that it was holy for us and holy to the Lord. We're to keep it holy. It also said that in Exodus. But now it says Sabbath day is holy to the Lord your God. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants or your ox or your donkeys or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That is your male servant or your female servant, that they may rest with you as well. You shall remember that you were a slave. Ooh, here's a new one. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with his mighty right hand, outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. See, we see a shift. There's a progressive shift of commentary. Obviously, as you look at the stories in between, you can tell the wrestle that the Lord is having with his people at that time. It's no longer a creation reference, but now he's telling in Deuteronomy that you're to remember when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, that it was God who saved God who led, and God who liberated you from your slavery. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. This is Deuteronomy 15. Again, this is a Sabbath motif. This is a Sabbath principle. The concept and the narrative of the Sabbath expands not only to just a day, but to the land, to the poor, and shows us a new creation motif. I encourage you to actually read all of Deuteronomy chapter 15 and 16 to see how the Lord sets up and teaches the Israelites about his entire economy. You know, when we talked earlier about he's the provision, trusting in him, 15 and 16, he, he lays out his entire economy for the establishment of the nation of the Israelites. Truly everything is God and his goodness is not scarce. That's the land, the people, and that all will be set free once again as a part of God's master plan for resting and dwelling and settling with him and us. This isn't just past, this isn't just present, but a future thing that we're looking at. We extend to others a release from the burdens rather than placing a yoke on them. Oh, where does that come up in regards to my yoke is easy? Oh, wait, they were talking about the Sabbath on that verse too. Oh, interesting. We extend the release from burdens rather than trying to put a yoke on them because the goal is not to be a Pharisee and turn what was given as a blessing into a burden. That's what the Pharisees did. They took blessings and made them burden. The Sabbath in Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, chapters 23 and 25, we see that the concept of the Sabbath grows into key rhythms, times throughout the year when the scattered people were to gather corporately to dwell with the Lord. They were to settle into his presence and reduce uh, and be reduced into nothing but a rest that only God could provide. This is also a foreshadow of the future redemption of all creation coming back into the eternal rest. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in there. Most of you guys in this room know about the feasts and the festivals and that. But no longer are we talking about one day every seven days. We're talking about three specific times a year and other times throughout the year that you would gather in your respective places or in your home. The Sabbath and the prophets. 
In Joshua chapter 6, we see the story of the battle of Jericho as a Shabbat motif, a Sabbath motif. How many of you thought about the, the Jericho battle in regards to the Sabbath? Anybody? Not even Ian? Okay. In Joshua chapter 6, when we talk about the story of the battle of Jericho, is also a Sabbath motif. Have you ever looked at it through the lens of a Sabbath motif? I know, I know you like yeah. to study. Okay, cool. Awesome. One person in the room has looked at it as a Sabbath motif. Awesome. I was just look, looking to not be all alone all the time here, guys. Jeez. We went from being a group of Christians who argued over everything to people who are just like, I'm just going to sit here. So, Six days, Joshua's men were instructed to march around the city with seven priests and seven trumpets. This also invokes the Jubilee years and 50s and all that kind of stuff. And quite honestly, we have no idea. With the calendars being lost and, and the multiple different calendars, and there's a whole gapping of time based upon Egyptian calendar sources in history and that, would, that would put us at a completely different calendar. And Michael Rood said he had it. And the Jubilee is an awesome concept. I believe that the eternal kingdom will be a Jubilee. We literally have no idea like what year we're on in a Hebrew thing. It's like a window, like, like a window. And what happens with windows? People paint a lot of different pictures, and sometimes they spit on them. The seventh, then on the seventh day after they marched around six times, the walls fell, giving way to God's perfect plan for them to be able to enter into the city and have a rest in the battle. Of course, you know, we can't skip over Daniel's timeline. That's a pretty dangerous conversation to have anywhere in Oklahoma. But uh, Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 weeks is also a Sabbath motif. It's constantly used to uh, play end times odd makers. They've literally been wrong every single time, and yet people come back every single time. It's like a drug. Like, it's just like a drug. Um, but yet the Sabbath... And more importantly, the return of creation to dwelling with and resting in God is interwoven into the past, present, and future of all God's covenants. Everything we do. Everything we do. Past, present, and future. Interwoven. Jesus and the Sabbath. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, we see Jesus confronted with the religious leadership regarding his practices of the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? You guys remember what David did? David went in and ate the bread he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to die. But he was hungry. Have you read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltiness, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We see a progression again. God gets up in their face, basically. You know, a lot of times we hear a, a passive Savior preached. But no, 
He's being challenged by the Pharisees on what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. They're basically accusing him of transgressing and breaking the Sabbath. And all of a sudden, not only does he take issue with them, but then he declares that Jesus, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's a, that's a huge statement because obviously the Pharisees knew the Sabbath is holy to the Lord. 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 This is a reoccurring picture throughout every week of their life. And he's saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. Now, they didn't know at that time that he was the son of man, per se. They, I think they knew more than they let on, but like it wasn't explicit. And yet he says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath which the Lord of the Sabbath declares the rulings of the Sabbath, the judgment of the Sabbath, the mercy of the Sabbath, and ultimately becomes the sacrifice for the guilt. The man with the withered hand. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. He didn't stop by just saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Again, they're trying to trick him. We have those questions. They're literally all the time. What am I allowed to do on the Sabbath? It's the same thing. And it's even worse, it's identical, when you already know what the Bible says about the Sabbath and you just want to get into a debate because you have a way you want to keep the Sabbath and you want to see if my way matches your way. That's, that's really what's happening here. It's basically, hey, is it okay if I heal this dude today? Like, is it okay if I go to church on Sunday? Is it okay if I eat at this restaurant? Like, I mean, can I eat at Red Lobster? Well, you know, I mean, we don't eat that stuff. Like, do they have chicken? Yeah, Jessica Simpson said there's chicken by the sea. Like, of course. Like, but they're trying to trick him so that they might accuse him. They were trying to bait him. They were trying to set him up. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and it was completely restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him, Matthew 12, 1 through 14. I actually came up against this. It wasn't intentional. Um, it was a couple years ago. It was before 2020. Uh, I was on a newsletter for, uh, I think it's the Salvation Army, right over there by Ian and Michael's house, the Salvation Army uh, outpost there. And I was on their newsletter. And literally moments after HFF was done, we didn't have table fellowship at that point in time, um, I got an email that said, freezing cold. They already found a homeless individual dead behind the 7-Eleven over there by, the, by Norman in a, in a trash bag. It was so cold. They said, we need blankets. We need food, we need hats, we need gloves. Like, we got more people than we can even put in here. We're way out of resources. And so, it's Sabbath day. We all kind of gone our own way. So like, I got on Facebook Live as Mason Clover, and I'm like, I'm standing outside Sam's. This is the need. Anybody who wants to donate, you can send money here. I'm going in. Anybody who wants to donate, take it here. And I filled my entire SUV 
with anything I could get, tuna, like, and it wasn't just the crap. It wasn't just like I went in and got Cheez-Its or whatever. Like, we got good food and stuff and loaded an entire SUV. I don't even remember how much it cost because it didn't matter how much it cost. It was, if I have a resource to do good on the Sabbath that possibly will save a life, I will do it. I got crucified. I got more people telling me I was transgressing the Sabbath than I got who donated towards it. And that's okay, because I do not care what they thought at all. But this comes right back to Matthew chapter 12. Do good. The Sabbath was given for your good. Do good. You see somebody walking down the street and you know they need a meal? Feed them. You see somebody passed out drunk? Help them. You know somebody has leaking water in their house? Go repair something. Somebody blows a tire. Go help them. You spend the entire day driving around Oklahoma City looking for an opportunity to be Jesus to somebody? Praise God you did good on the Sabbath. While everybody else argued whether you could or could not do this, whether this was the third week of Daniel's timeline or not, go be Jesus to somebody. Because that's the point. And it was the Pharisees who were trying to trip him up. I can tell you this, I have my own opinion. I've kept the Sabbath many different ways in 17 years. I very rarely have ever gone out and told people how I keep the Sabbath because it's not relevant. When people ask, I don't know how to keep the Sabbath, what do you do? I say, well, what does your family like to do? Because we've done it like 70 different ways. So in this season, we did it this way. In this season, it's basically just taco bars. Like we'll say a prayer, drink a beer, everybody does their own thing. Sometimes it's very, we got, we got the little Jewish, I'm going to pour some grape juice and they all go into grape juice things. We used to get the Talit out. I've got Sidors. I've been there. I've been there, done that. I've been in all areas and we might go back. We might go back to those things. Whatever the Lord tells us. My wife and I literally before every cycle of feasts go before the Lord and say, hey Lord, what do you have for us? And we wait. And sometimes he says, do this. Sometimes he says, do that. I don't, I don't care how the Hellermans keep the Sabbath. I don't care how you guys keep the Sabbath. That's not my right. Now, when you come into this church and you cause a problem with it, Katie, bar the door, the apostolic side of me is coming back out, not the pastor side. But what you do in your home is between you and God and you will answer for it. And if you don't want to find that peace and rest with the Lord, Nothing I say to you is going to help you find that. I've learned to talk less and walk more over the last two years. Let the fruit show. Let the fruit show that, that my wife likes to hang out with me. Let the fruit show that my kids want to be at home. We don't need to be going, going, going to these. Let the fruit show that you can have peace. Most people don't have peace. They have some level of anxiety. If I can teach you nothing today, what anybody else thinks of you and how you keep the Sabbath is irrelevant. It's what God is convicting you of. And if God's convicting you and you know he is and you're like, I just have no convictions on that. Yeah, you'll deal, for, you'll, you'll deal with that too. He'll deal with that. If he's saying, hey, I, I really want you to open the Bible and read it with your kids. And you're like, no, God's not convicting me. We're having a great time. Good, you fooled me. But you can't fool God. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29. 
Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. This ties all the way back to creation. Everybody's weary. Everybody's got some sort of burden. And the yoke is easy. He'll take your burden yoke and put it on his shoulder. He shows this with the cross. He's literally stumbling through the town, bruised and beaten with the weight of your yoke. When I say it literally all comes down to a man dying on a cross saving the world, it's literally that simple. If the Sabbath is about Jewish customs or about Hebrew roots customs or about your customs, literally there's nothing wrong with customs and traditions at all unless they are direct replications of other worship to other gods. God was all about traditions. God didn't have a problem with that. It's when you start to impose them as commandments that we have a problem. When you start to say, thus saith the Lord, that's when we have a problem. When the Pharisees said, you're not washing your hands before you eat, that's a problem. That's not a thus saith the Lord. This is no different than when my Methodist father comes in and says, oh, you can't eat, you're going to get Harper and we haven't prayed. Not a thing, Dad. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. I might get heartburn, but that's because we're having Taco Bell. It's, it's not because we didn't pray for the Taco Bell beforehand. Before, before they confronted Jesus on the Sabbath, Matthew clarifies Jesus' words that people are just worn down, they're tired, they're burdened, they're afraid. They're afraid to transgress the laws, to fall short, to keep up with the Joneses. It's in Jesus that we find rest. We find the intent of the Sabbath to dwell in peace and rest and settle in God. The series of statements and interaction in Matthew elevates the Sabbath to more than just a mere remembrance. And it points us to creation, to a creation that needs to dwell with God and be restored to his rhythms and cycles. Jesus is here to usher in this covenant. John 14, 1 through 7. Let your, not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am my Father's house. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus tells us that in the Father's house, there's many dwelling places, and that he's going to prepare that place of rest so that we can settle and dwell in all eternity that he'll come again and it will be him who takes us to that final resting place. This is again an elevation of the different paradigms of the Sabbath. It's an eternal rest and a dwelling with God in and through Jesus. When you take Jesus out, you have a serious issue with how you're going to get to dwell and rest in this eternal Shabbat, this eternal Sabbath with the Lord. Because it says, I'm the one who can take you there because I'm the one who prepared the place and I'm the one who gets you into my father's house. 
can't work your way into the Father's house. You have to know the guy who has the ticket. And you have to abide in him. Mark 2, 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as he made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Nobody's ever watched a Facebook post on the Sabbath and seen that. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry, he and those who were with him? And let's get this, like David wasn't some poor sojourner who was, David was David. This wasn't some random dude. This would be like Brent in our church. Like David, that David burst in and took the Holy Communion and everybody's like, oh sacrilege he ate the eucharist he didn't even like say father son holy spirit like yeah that type of stuff he was in hungry he was in need he was hungry he and those who were with him and how he answered the lord's house of god in the time of abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat and also gave it to those who were with him man david walked into the bar knew he had a free beer waiting for him. And he was like, and for everybody else. That's basically what happened here. He was like, the bar's like, hey man, no, I didn't, I didn't know. Now it was all Bud Light, so it was cheap, but who, no. The, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord for the Sabbath. Again, the Sabbath was created for you. You weren't created for the Sabbath. So, when we interact and we dialogue and we get caught in, in literally the most kindergarten pre-K arguments of what is and what is not acceptable and we pass judgment and we get all mad and all these things, we're literally missing the entire purpose and point of the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath is that you are to find a resting place, settle and dwell with the Lord. It's a lot easier to do that when you're busy with other like-minded people praising the Lord. And you sit at home and you're just watching the clock countdown and you're like, ah, oh, I can't get through it. Like, it gets a little, I don't know how many cows jumped over the moon while you were counting, but it was more than you should have ever counted. This is why walking in community is so important. Man was not made to rest. We were made to work. We worked before we rested. From the garden, we were given tasks to work. The fall of man made that work harder, more tiresome and more burdensome. Yet the Sabbath, the rest in Jesus, the working from a place of rest, not resting from a place of work alone is why rest was made for man. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath because it is he who is our rest. Just ceasing from your labor doesn't provide any type of peace. It doesn't provide settling. It doesn't provide dwelling. You have to shift your paradigm on the Sabbath that it's more than just ceasing on a Saturday. It's more than just ceasing. We also see this in Hebrews chapter 4. Brent just went through this. There's a Sabbath rest for the people of God, a restoration back to a future time where we will not toil in our labors, strive to find righteousness apart from God and our own doings, and fully dwell in the completion of the creation as it was intended to be. Not just a checklist of do's and don'ts, not just a regulation of what to do and what not to do, but an actual full redemption and restoration to actually be able to dwell at peace with God as his apprentices with rest. The Sabbath is a gift of life, and it's a gift for life. A life no longer tied 
to what we can or cannot accomplish according to the systems of the slavery around us, a gift of freedom from the bondage of our sins and slavery to our own sinful selves, our own sinful nature. A gift not only to remind us of what was, but what is and what is to come. The complete restoration of who God created us to be. The goal of the Sabbath is not to say, I keep Sabbath. It is to allow Jesus to utterly destroy the culture's grasp on who you are, what you are, and how you are to be. It is to find peace, rest, and transformation to become fully engaged in apprentices who look, talk, and walk like Jesus. You might look like Jesus and talk like the Pharisees. The Sabbath is, is a place for us to be fully transformed, to walk, walk, look, and talk like Jesus as his apprentices. In that goal, you find rest like no other rest, and an order that pushes back against the chaos of the world, just like God spoke order into the chaos of the creation of the world. We aren't just attempting to fulfill the Saturday paradigm of the Sabbath. We're attempting to fulfill all of the paradigms of the Sabbath. So today, I hope if you struggled with exactly what the Sabbath is, I hope that maybe we shed some release to look at the Sabbath as more than just a list of rules. It wasn't like God was like, okay, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep up in the ante on you. I'm going to keep adding to this. I'm going to keep adding to this. I, I want... I want to enslave you to my system. No. The only time God had to up the ante on the list of do's and don'ts on the Sabbath is because we couldn't get the one thing right. And that was, trust me, don't go pick up the manna today. Trust me, don't go pick up the manna on that tree. It's the same paradigm. It's the same fruit. It's the same issue. Sooner or later, we have to come to a place of full submission to God in our houses, our marriage, our life. Every day should be like a Sabbath where you should feel the peace and the rest of the Lord in everything you do. But first, we have to find the peace and the rest of the Lord by dwelling with him on the one day that he said, I'm going to be here. And it's hard because we all grew up in a culture we saw a massive shift on whether Sunday mornings were even a requirement. And then we listen to podcasts and we debate why our children don't have a relationship with God, why they don't want to go to church, why they're deconstructing their faith. It's not just Christianity. It's our little corner of Christianity as well. All the 20-something-year-olds, for the most part, early 20s, they're pretty much gone. Because what we told them was, you don't need church, you don't need community, you don't need anybody to help you walk out these commandments. And by the way, if you walk out these commandments perfectly, you don't need Jesus. And while most people weren't bold enough to say that verbatim, after 17 years and thousands and thousands and thousands 175,000 people a month we were influencing since 2011. I don't know how many before that. Sometimes it's not what you say that matters. It's the example you set. 